Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-based unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week... It hasn't happened since 1914, but invading Mexico is suddenly back in fashion. Dan Crenshaw and Tom Cotton want to send US security forces across the Rio Grande. Vivek Ramaswamy wants a shock and awe campaign in the drug war. For all the obvious aesthetic value, this week we consider, is it actually a good idea to invade a neighbouring state? Ursula von der Leyen has launched an EU probe into Chinese EVs. Coincidentally, it seems, at the exact moment that Chinese EVs are rapidly overwhelming their German and French competitors. Is this yet more evidence that the old WTO world is breaking down under the intensity of Far Eastern competition, or is it just an entirely randomly timed, totally above board probe? Remember stock buybacks? When the QE financial firehose was turned on, CEOs with nothing better to do found they could boost shareholder value by simply buying up their own equity with free money. But as rates normalise, and the tide goes out on all those overvalued corporations, it's time to see who was swimming naked. But first... Totally Mexico. Politico.com, a website that is these days, I guess, the political wonk's source of uh, news and information, published a story that uh, Dan Crenshaw, a Republican congressman from Texas, and also crucially chair of the task force to combat the Mexican drug cartels, has said that with regard to the bill that he's introduced to try to allow the US to use its military to combat the drug cartels, that he would consider restricting armed action until Mexico approved of it, which sounds pretty astonishing for me because what they're actually talking about here is the use of US armed forces, US military power in a sovereign and independent country, one which is the US ally, and they're kind of considering allowing Mexico to have a say on whether that's possible or not. And if you're as astonished as I am with the uh, tone of that, I think it's worth going back a little bit to understand what's been going on with Mexico, specifically with regards to the drug cartel. So as many of our listeners will be aware, all of them, I should imagine, the US has really been fighting a, a war on drugs, a losing war on drugs, I suppose, for many decades now. But recently, that's got much worse with the introduction of fentanyl, which I believe is some kind of synthetic opioid, which is just leading to so many deaths through overdose and so many ruined lives, as all drugs do, that it's becoming a huge political issue. At the same time, it seems increasingly the case that the cartels, as much as the government in Mexico, control certain regions of the country. And this is causing a great deal of consternation. These twin issues are causing a great deal of consternation in Washington. So in January, Mr. Crenshaw, the aforementioned uh, Republican congressman from Texas, and Mike Waltz, who is a 
a representative from Florida, introduced a bill, basically, that would allow the US to use military force to go to war, in their words, with the Mexican drug cartels. And as recently as early March, this bill received support from some very well-known Republicans on the hawkish side of foreign policies, including Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz. Now, at the time, the idea was this. It was to declare the cartels who control the the shepherding of drugs from Mexico and sometimes through Mexico from places like Colombia into the US. It was to declare them terrorist organizations. And by doing that, it would essentially set the legal groundwork for the US to use whichever force it wanted. Now, you also have Republican candidates for the presidential race, like Vivek Ramaswamy, who wants to use drones, essentially copy the kind of like the Obama era drone war against Al-Qaeda, and then later under Trump, ISIS, but use them against the Mexican drug cartels as well. This as you might imagine, is really not being received well in Mexico itself. The Mexican president, AMLO, is very much against this and, in fact, said the following back in March or maybe February. And I I would like listeners, I'm going to read this out in full because I would like listeners to pay attention to this because it shows how potentially fraught this issue is. AMLO, the president of Mexico, said, Once and for all, let's set our position straight. We will not allow any foreign government to intervene in our territory, much less with armed forces. And from today, we will begin an information campaign for Mexicans and Hispanics that live and work in the United States to inform them of what we are doing in Mexico and how this initiative of the Republicans, besides being irresponsible, is an insult to the Mexican people and a lack of respect to our independence and sovereignty. If they do not change their attitude and continue using Mexico for electoral propaganda, we are going to recommend not voting for this party. Now, there are, you know, the north of 25, 30 million Mexican-Americans who are, or, or Mexicans eligible to vote in U.S. elections. And it really seems that the U.S. and Mexico are on a collision course with regard to this matter. On the one hand, you've got... You know, U.S. congressmen want to use military force to tackle the cartels and their power in Mexico, which would mean, I guess, U.S. special forces actually on the ground in Mexico looking to take out, kill, liquidate senior members or or, or soldiers within the cartel system. And bearing in mind the cartel system is intrinsically linked to politicians, to police, to the army itself in certain quarters. In, in, In other ways, they battle against each other. You can imagine how fraught and potentially destabilizing that would be. On the other hand, you've got the Mexican government threatening that if the U.S. goes on with this, they will use the, you know, the some 10% of the total U.S. population, which is a big amount, who are Hispanic, to rage against this (laughs) and use the weight of their votes to fight against it, which could potentially, I suppose, be destabilizing for the U.S. as well. So... I think this latest piece of news, quite shocking in terms of the way it's put in itself. You know, we would consider allowing the Mexican government to have a say on whether we send our soldiers into their country. I mean, that's shocking in itself. But, you know, I think the most important thing is it's yet another step 
on this kind of road that the US and uh, Mexico are going down, which uh, could be potentially quite serious indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think first might be worth saying something about the capacity of the Mexican government to flip votes. They might be a little bit overconfident there. Last time, last election, the Trump versus Biden election, that Trump obviously lost. One of the one of the places where Trump picked up an awful lot of votes was in South Texas. This is along the border, very heavily Hispanic area and very heavily Mexico area. Specifically, he took a lot of votes in Star County and Zapata County, which were, I think, pretty solidly blue prior to that. So they might actually have kind of a hard time convincing Mexicans in America or even Mexican Americans that they shouldn't vote for this based on you know, given the fact that the politicians are promising to clean up the border problem and the drug problem, I think this pretty much lines up with the polling that you see that Hispanic immigrants are much more skeptical of immigration than non-immigrants. So I think that will be the first thing to say. The second thing, I suppose, is, you know, just to give kind of a, a sense of a scale of the problem here. So if you look at drug overdose deaths, back in 2015, they were about 52,400, and they'd been climbing steadily as the years went on, some of that just due to population growth, but of course, some of it due to the fact that the drug problem was getting worse and worse by the year, as you alluded to, a failed drug war for a very long time, and perhaps we can talk more about that, especially the domestic aspects of it in a moment. But look, 52,000 in 2015, and if you rewind back to maybe 2005, 30,000. So between in 10 years, you see a jump from about 30,000 to about 52,000, and it's a very linear progression. Not so since 2015. Okay, so in 10 years, it, it goes from 30,000 to 50,000. Now, in only six years between 2015 and 2021, it's jumped from 50,000 to 100,000. So it's doubled. It's just flat out doubled. And a lot of these deaths are accounted for by fentanyl because fentanyl is a completely different type of drug. I know people always say when the new drug comes on the scene, it's completely different. Often that's exaggerated, but in the case of fentanyl, it isn't. Now, some of what fentanyl is doing is it's killing would-be heroin addicts. Fentanyl is cheaper to get than heroin. I'm, I'm not much of a heroin aficionado personally, but my understanding is maybe it gives a bit more of a buzz or something like that. So people, people seek out the fentanyl for whatever reason. You see this, you see very depressing videos of places like Philadelphia and San Francisco. The effects of this drug are clearly next level they're kind of people leaning over they look like zombies and those those are bad in and of themselves you don't want a bunch of people dying in your inner cities falling or falling over dead and of course fentanyl is much easier to overdose on because the dosing it is so much it's so much more concentrated dosing it is a lot more difficult but the the one that's really i think getting to people in america is Kids are dying from this stuff, and they're not dying because they're becoming addicted to heroin and then progressing onto fentanyl and overdosing. They're dying because the cartels and the drug dealers that they're selling to are trying to do things on the cheap, and they're replacing, I mean, I don't want to call it recreational drug use, but you know, recre basically recreational drug use pills with fentanyl pills because it's just simply cheaper to do. So kids, there's a bit of a fad, I think, of, of taking a pain medication called Percocet. I think it is actually an opiate, but it's not a very, not a very powerful one, at least uh, relative to heroin or fentanyl. And, you know, it's, you hear about it in rap songs and stuff, and kids take this Percocet and they, 
you know, get high on it or whatever. But you hear a lot of these overdose deaths now where the kid thinks that they're getting a Percocet pill and they're actually getting a pill laced with fentanyl. And obviously somebody's done the dose slightly wrong because these are being cooked up in some criminal lab somewhere and the kid overdoses. And and this is happening everywhere. If you know anybody under the age of maybe 30 and you ask them, you know, middle-class people who go to a middle-class high school, a lot of people have heard of fentanyl deaths. So, you know, we're talking about an additional 50,000 dead a year. We're talking about most of that, okay, being concentrated in the inner cities among drug addicts, but still, you know, that's not great in itself. And then you also have this issue of a kind of slipping and sliding into the middle class areas. And I just say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not endorsing the American plan to go into Mexico, but I am just pointing out that countries have gone to war for less than 50,000 dead a year. So the problem now has got so large that, I mean, I think we're on the same page that inevitably I think something's going to happen here. Crenshaw was kind of slightly hinting that this was kind of a psyop, he called it a psyop, and Mexico will be terrified and they'll take action. I don't think it's going in that direction at all. Maybe there won't be full military involvement or anything like that, but I think I think this situation has become unsustainable. And frankly, that's on the Mexican government. They've lost control of the north of their country and they've tolerated these drug cartels and there's a lot of corruption and so on. Well, what did you think you were going to do? You, you, you destabilized your border. You let drug cartels run along the border and, you know, the country next to you says, if you can't police your own, we're going to have to police it for you. I, I don't think it's that shocking. From afar, it does seem that the drug situation in the US is abysmal. It also seems that the situation in terms of the the rule of rightful authority within Mexico is abysmal as well. It seems to me that you know there are some cities and even states of Mexico in which the the rules and the uh, the authority of the drug cartels means more than the rules and the authority of the legislature and the executive within Mexico. <laughs> you know, I would say somewhere like. Culiacan in the Sinaloa state or province in Mexico, uh, of course, home of the famous Sinaloa drug cartel is a little bit like that. From what I can gather reading, you know, perhaps non-mainstream sources, the problem that I have and the the reason that I, I, I think the, the US is going down a very dangerous path here, an extremely dangerous path, is, is threefold. The first reason I think it's foolish is because I think the majority of the blame for this does not lie with the chaotic and almost kind of, you know, dualistic state south of the border, but it lies with them themselves. You and I, Philip, have both seen, I'm sure, I I haven't, I'm sure you will have as well, because they're all over, the videos that people take from their cars driving through cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles where for block after block, as you say, there are people just out of their minds on drugs or otherwise benighted because of drugs, where they're kind of, they look literally like zombies. They're kind of shaking and, and shambling around and, and you, you know, leaning to one side like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and they look like they can barely keep their balance, and they're, you know, they're nodding in that very stereotypical way that people on opiates nod. It would take a, you know, a state authority just to go up that street and take all of those people off that street, all of them, 
and put them in some kind of secure facility where they can get off drugs and and, and, and anywhere off the street and prevented from buying drugs. There's also a massive amount, as you say, of habitual, well, habitual is maybe the wrong word, but regular drug use, even among more well-to-do groups of society, things like cocaine. And as you said, like opiates like Percocet or ket- and, and, and other drugs like ketamine and, and MDMA-derived drugs are really used a huge amount by younger people in America, even quite well-to-do ones. And, you know, this is a problem. You, you could have a perfectly stable state south of the border, but if you are a trading nation, then it's extremely difficult to prevent drugs getting into the country. I mean, Britain is an island, and we can't do it. We can't do it. You might raise the cost of drugs a little bit and thereby, at the margin, cut the amount of drugs that are being used. But it seems to me that the, the, you know, the people who smuggle these things have ever more ingenious ways of getting them through. And even if Mexico was stable, that wouldn't change it. The, you know, what would change it is absolutely hammering the demand for drugs. And there are very clear and obvious ways to do that. Singapore had an atrocious drug problem after the war, solved it. Japan had a terrible drug problem after the war, solved it. Very few people take drugs in South Korea at the moment. Now, you might say, oh, these are all Asian countries. It's like a cultural thing. But no, it's not. Like They had abysmal drug problems, and they just solved it. And it's as simple as that. There are ways the US can go about doing this. The second reason that I think it's a terrible mistake is, look, I'm not an expert on the situation in Mexico. I'm really not. I'm actually very ignorant about this. But it seems to me from afar that the individual cartels are fighting each other. There are factions within some cartels that are kind of semi-cooperating, semi-competing, semi-at war. Um, There are different factions within the police, the armed forces, other agents of the government. The government and the cartels kind of battle against each other. The cartels, you know, own in inverted commas, certain, you know, politicians and police chiefs. It it, it seems to me like an extraordinarily complicated situation. And Western powers, as we've seen in, you know, the last 20, 30 years, have a terrible record of going into countries with military force to solve extremely difficult situations like this. You know, you could swap, you know, the Sinaloa cartel and the, whatever cartel and the Mexican government, you know, you could swap that for, uh, you know, a whole range of other different factions of countries that we've gone into. And it's always, always without fail made the situation not better, but worse. It's always destabilized the country. It's always exasperated many of the problems that we were trying to solve in the first place. So I think using military force in this way is, is poor. What is a good idea is continue. And one of the things I find strange about this is the Mexican government and the U.S. have been cooperating on military matters, specifically as it pertains to the drug cartels, since two thousand one, and that cooperation has quietly been increasing. So it seems really strange that they would kind of like risk abandoning that for for this, right? I think that would make more sense, you know working with people who've got knowledge about how things really work on the ground and what really needs to be done rather than going in with the clunking fist and the and uh, you know the ignorance of the certain the final thing i would say is that we i've said this on the podcast before 
America's huge geopolitical power and its standing over the last you know, 30 years as, uh, as the sole superpower within a unipolar system, and before that as one of two superpowers within a, a bipolar system, that is, it's not just about its, you know, its natural resources, its its ability to feed itself, its high degree of intellectual human and, and human capital, its huge industry, its economy, and ultimately its military. Those are all important, and, and the US is probably the most powerful world in those terms. But what really makes it incredibly powerful is its geographical location. It's protected on two sides by the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which are uncrossable in terms of invasion or in terms of any ability to meddle with the US. And just as important is the fact that it's to the north, it has Canada, and to the south, it has Mexico, two countries which are much weaker than the US and are anywhere its allies. So it has an extraordinarily and, and uniquely quiescent and, and, and pacified local neighborhood, which allows it to, 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 to push out the entirety of its power, economic, military, diplomatic, out into the world and influence the world in that way. If suddenly, I'm, I'm not saying there's going to be a sudden break, but if the US foments problems with Mexico, then suddenly its neighborhood is no longer quiescent. If you have a resentful and bitter Mexico that is utterly destabilized and in a, in a state of chaos and, 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 and anarchy, if you also have, a kind of a, as I say, resentful Mexican politicians trying to meddle in US internal affairs, trying to, 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 to build up resentment and, 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 and certain political forces among the huge Hispanic community within America, then that becomes a huge problem. And, and the U.S. instantly, in that case, loses one of its key benefits, not perhaps to the extent that many other countries do, which live next door to bona fide great powers, but it loses some of it. Yeah, I think, I think the point is well taken on the domestic drug situation. I mean, ultimately, the drug situation is so bad in America because they can't police their drug problem which is clearly growing by the year. And to some extent, lashing out at Mexico feels like, well, just that lashing out at somebody else because, you know, you can't solve your own problems. I mean, I feel bad for the Americans because I know that there's some people in the government there, probably some of the people that are getting behind this, who would like to crack down on the drugs domestically. But the issue is is politicized, sadly. it's It's gotten to the point now where it's it's not even like, you know, in the 60s and the 70s when people were saying, oh, what, what if we kind of experiment with relaxing some of these laws and see if we can control it? Now it's, it's gotten really nasty and, and, you know, some people on the radical sides are pushing for injection sites and safe injection sites and they're trying to normalize drugs and everything. So I can kind of, I mean, I can see both sides to that. I can see that, the you know, ultimately you could view this as lashing out because the demand is coming internally. But on the other hand, you could also see it that, you know, it's 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 basically it's a it's roadblocked politically. And the only the only moving part, in a sense, that uh, people who care about this issue can push on is is to try and stamp out the supply on the point about destabilization and foreign interventions not working out so well. I don't think this will be of the same type. When America and Britain intervened in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, and the rest of the allies, Australia and all them. 
when they intervened there, the first the first thing that they wanted to do was take out the state apparatus. You know, they debathified Iraq. They got rid of the Taliban government. Um, the goal here, as far as I can tell, would not be to take out the Mexican state. In fact, I think by the end of it, hopefully you'd be pouring money into the Mexican state to expand into the northern territories. So I think there will be a fundamentally different different uh, type of intervention. Now, if the Mexican state declared war against the U.S. Army, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it would get that far, I hope. But if that happened, you know, you could get kind of all sorts of craziness. One more point on the on the kind of military or geopolitical thing, and I'll, I'll move on to the economics of this. Um, and that's that, uh, you know, the, the Mexican drug cartels, you alluded to it there, very complex, very, very influential, basically in control of large swathes of territory, towns, and so on. They have increasingly advanced weaponry, some of which it seems now is coming from Ukraine and so on. Um, you know, they aren't just guys messing around with a couple of AK-47s. They're not just your neighborhood drug dealer. They have, you know, they have heavy machine guns mounted to pick up trucks. There's some evidence that they might even have anti-air. Maybe it's primitive, but there's some evidence of that. So they have real weapons. Now, the question I'd be asking if I was America is, at what point does that become a militia on your border? At what point does that become a non-state actor that's very well armed, that could side with my enemies, that could just decide to kind of, you know, rebel, try and take territory? You don't know. You, it's not a state structure. There's no normal diplomatic structures there. Uh, maybe there's some underground ties between the police and the gangs that you can use to make communications or something. But you're dealing with something very very not great there. And again, I, I can kind of see the logic for wanting to clean something like that up from a state security point of view. Anyway, that will be, again, some more of the bull case. I'm not saying I fully am bought into this, but I can kind of see both sides of it. The thing that would really worry me would be the, be, be the economic effects. And that's because Mexico is by far one of America's biggest trade partners, and that's by design. When NAFTA was passed in the mid-90s, the whole idea was to turn all of North America, Mexico, the United States, and Canada into basically a free trade zone, much like the European Union, except I, without the free movement of people, although they seem to be getting de facto free movement of people due to the border situation. But but basically, it was, it was, it was, they wanted to turn it into a giant free trade zone. And if you're into that kind of thing, i.e. free trade zones, it's worked out very, very well. Mexico is just there was a Bloomberg article out seven days ago that said Mexico had actually overtaken China as the largest trade partner with the U.S. Mexico exports an enormous amount to the U.S. and it also imports an enormous amount. I think in terms of the exports, China still beats Mexico, but in terms of the imports, that is as a market for U.S. goods, uh, Mexico Mexico beats them out. The other issue with it is that these aren't just these aren't unimportant components. You know, these aren't kind of a pen shop or what they call in America dollar store type of goods. If you look at the the largest categories of Mexican imports to America, it's new cars and trucks, auto parts, computer equipment. Right, those are the top three. And what that is is mainly American companies. I mean, labor dumping effectively, wage dumping. They're, they're going into Mexico, they're getting set up there, they're building the cars and so on there, and they're sending them back. 
these aren't domestically produced in America, but they're probably the second best thing from being domestically produced in America. Now, some people in America will say we should have that industry back. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. It's an interesting question. America do run a massive trade deficit with Mexico. But ultimately, if if there were ever any serious economic problem between the US and, and Mexico where the, the flow of goods both ways wasn't getting through, you'd probably see like car shortages, inflation, that kind of thing. Now, I'll just end with saying that would not be in the interest of either America or the Mexican government. No matter how mad the Mexican government were, I couldn't see them trying to engage in a trade embargo. I don't think this is like China. If, if We've expressed the view before, or at least I have, that if a war kicked off in the South China Sea, I'd almost guarantee that China would launch economic and financial war in America and would probably win it. And I don't think that would be the case with Mexico. I don't think the US would want that domestic disruption, so they wouldn't do it. And America's economy, unlike China's, is just, it's almost 100%, not 100%, but it's very, very, very dependent on the US economy. So if they did a trade embargo, unemployment would just skyrocket up to, who knows, 30, 40%, who knows. And that's on the back of, of probably this these military disruptions in the north. So that would be the really doomsday scenario. I mean, the, the, the thing that could cause some real problems for the Americans from an economic point of view. But given the way the chips are stacked, it seems unlikely that either player would do that. Yeah, I mean, on the economic point, one thing I would add is the current disagreement with regards to the potential military use of in Mexico to combat the drug cartels is not the only area of conflict between the Mexican government and the Americans. I believe I'm right in saying that the Americans, under pressure from some of their agricultural and food some of their big agricultural and food producers are taking the Mexicans to court under NAFTA rules, which you mentioned earlier, because of Mexico's reluctance to accept GM crops within Mexico. Another area of conflict is the fact that Mexico, very few people know this, but Mexico is actually quite resource rich. And until recently, it had a, a suite of legislation that made it extraordinarily friendly toward large mining concerns to come into the country and start mining. Things like, for instance, lithium, which Mexico has quite significant deposits of. The government is now changing this legislation to be much more friendly toward workers and the state budget and also the environment. And that's also causing discontent because a lot of these mining com companies who have had real sweetheart deals are indeed American and American multinationals. So this isn't the only area where the Mexicans and the Americans are coming into conflict. I'm almost certain that this will this will all settle in favor of the United States. It's the more powerful of the two sides here. However, I think it's something that we should watch as a podcast and hope to keep listeners informed of. EV, go home. Yeah, so this week, Ursula von der Leyen, the um, president of the European Commission, announced that they'd be launching an anti-subsidies probe into the market for Chinese electric vehicles. This is kind of coming on the back of data, well, at least the news reports are telling us it's coming on the back of data that shows Chinese EVs increasingly dominated the market. Just to give some sense of that, the share of electric car sales in Europe dropped to, to 11%. Sorry, that's in Europe from European producers dropped to 11% in the first half of 2022 down from 13%, whereas the same the same electronic vehicle sales from China 
surged to nearly 18%. So the Chinese are, as is their want, eating their lunch in Europe on this. By the way, American-made EVs are behind that again. They look like they're at about 6%. So, so they're not doing so well. And, you know, part of this, obviously, the way that von der Leyen and the European Commission are Framing it is partly, you know, it's the Chinese being good at what the Chinese are good at, cheap labor, highly efficient, cost-effective production techniques, and they just tend to kind of eat your lunch in any in any game where you're producing something that's already effectively been designed, that's able to be mass manufactured, and they just go for it. In addition to this, the European Commission are basically with their anti-subsidies probe implying, not even implying, they're saying that the, that this might be this might be unfair competition. Because the Chinese government might be subsidizing these electric vehicles, in which case it's it's an unfair advantage, as it were. I think that's under WTO rules, but I could be wrong on that. So I think what it, what, what what they're saying effectively is we're going to see if you if we can prove that you guys are engaged in unfair competition, and what we ultimately want to do is put tariffs on you. So Europe is going into protectionist mode now. I don't think that this is really all about China. I don't think that we'd be hearing this as loud if we'd had an alternative, you know, an alternative history in which the Ukraine war never took place and the Nord Stream pipeline was still pumping gas. I don't think, and maybe we'd be talking about this a little bit, but I don't think it would be as aggressive. I think this is the beginning of the European turn to protectionism. I wrote an article about this last year saying, look, with Nord Stream out of action, with these LNG imports coming in, which you and I have discussed before, are 40% more expensive than, than piped gas from Russia. With, this, with these high energy prices, Europe just can't compete. And we're already seeing that. We saw, we saw a chart in the Financial Times, I think this week. I tweeted it. I think it went viral, actually. Um, and uh, and the, the, the output of energy intensive industries in Germany has fallen like 20%. And there's not even a recession. So that's about the same as it fell. It's actually more than it fell during the COVID lockdown. So when they locked down the factories, <laughs> it's it's fallen as much as that without a recession. And we had a recession back then. So I think that, that von der Leyen's comments and this new move is Europe going into an inevitable protectionist crouch, saying we know our energy is, is makes us no longer competitive. And so we need to pull up the drawbridges and ensure that our man- domestic manufacturing is protected. Now we can go into the the good, the bad and the ugly of that, but I think I think that this is another behind the headlines kind of thing and that people should be far less focused on the on the specifics of this and more focused on a, a potential general trend by the Europeans and the European Commission toward protectionism. I think the first thing I would say about this is that the German car industry has actually been worried about this for years and years and years. For my sins, I read or try to read quite regularly uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard's column in the Telegraph. That's the Telegraph of London for our American listeners, and he's been writing about this. That the you know, and and, and not just recently as well. I can remember five, six years ago, him writing that you know the uh, electric cars weren't ready yet in terms of their cost effectiveness. But in terms of their cost and efficiency, they were essentially following Moore's law as battery technology and as manufacturing techniques you know, pushed down the cost and increased the amount of production. And then economies of scale took hold and, and accelerated that process. And that the Germans were petrified that they'd actually you know, fallen behind on this. In fact, I remember 
reading one German car executive being quoted anonymously saying that he feared that Wolfsburg would go the same way as Coventry. And for those who don't know, Wolfsburg is the traditional home of Volkswagen. It, it's the kind of the sanctum sanctorum of German car making. And Coventry was the centre of British car making, which until the 60s produced, I, I believe I'm right in saying, even more cars than the Germans. <laughs> Coventry was the kind of British Detroit and yeah, I mean, German car manufacturers have been panicked about this for years and years. Now, the flip side of that coin is I've been no, I've noticed something recently that what the Chinese do when it comes to industrial policy, people assume, or there seems to be a general view in the world that the way Chinese industrial policy works is that they undervalue their currency to make their exports more competitive around the world that their labor is dirt cheap, which, again, makes their exports more competitive around the world, and they steal ideas. And you put those together, and you get all of this cheap stuff that's sold in Walmart or the dollar or the pound shop and some you know, you know, higher-end stuff, but lower-quality higher-end stuff. What I think people don't realize is that that's not the way the Chinese work. They, they do you know, by definition, have an undervalued currency because otherwise they wouldn't be running huge current account surpluses year after year. But really how it works is they have very serious and integrated industrial plans. They target sectors that they believe will be important in global industry in the future or for the global consumer market in the future, and in which they believe that they can generate a competitive advantage either naturally or with a bit of government help, you know, in, in economic terms, that Ricardian advantage. And then they set policy uh, across a range of areas from, from inexpensive bank loans to research and development help to import and export policy from inward investment policy, even through to the, the, the you know, the state of the local government, the local legislature, you know, where they can build factories. It's a, it, it's a very complicated and kind of holistic way in which they work. And then in 10 or 15 years, they've got like this world-beating industry in mobile phones through uh, Huawei or in electric cars as in now. And when that happens, the US suddenly goes, oh my God, Huawei is taking over the mobile phone market. Oh my God, Huawei is taking over 5G. Oh my God, Chinese cars are taking over our electric vehicles. And they respond with this foolish, straight-up protectionism. Instead of actually thinking and sitting down and doing what is extremely hard work in terms of industrial policy, they, you know, they, they do not enough or they do nothing at all. And then when the fruits of that inaction are ripe, they panic. Now, this is a particularly egregious moment because... You know, you and I were both screaming to anybody who who would listen that the sanctions against Russia were a mistake, that they would rebound on Europe at least as much as they affected Russia, and that the increase in energy prices was not over, and it would cause a long and slow grind of deindustrialization. Okay, and people, you know, disagreed with us both on social media about this. People were even kind of criticizing us, uh, uh, you know, calling us names for saying this. 
And But my point of view was, look, if tomorrow uh, a government was elected in Germany that said that, right, from the next day, all workers are going to be paid 50% more, their wages are going to be 50% more, would you imagine that a 50% increase in labor costs would have an effect on the competitiveness of German manufacturing output in the world? Of course you would. That's just common sense. Everybody would agree with that. But it seems that nobody in Europe, nobody in the places of power has considered the fact that a 40 or 50% increase in energy costs, which is you know, one of the big three cost inputs, energy, raw materials, and labor, okay, would have an effect on the competitiveness of German cars. You've got you know, the German car manufacturers have been, you know, worried about this for years. The, you know, the German government hasn't done enough to look, you know, to a, a, address the electric vehicle market, to see the writing on the wall in terms of the direction things were going, and to do a lot of hard work in terms of setting an industrial policy that would give it an advantage. On top of that, then they've put sanctions which have artificially increased the cost of energy by 30-40%, and now they want to pull up the drawbridges, pull up the tariff drawbridges. Well, now we're going to get the protectionism that these same people have been screaming at us for 25 years will destroy the world. And actually, it's coming at a very inopportune time, and I don't think it's going to work out so well. But, you know, they're the ones that used to tell us this this was a big, dangerous, scary monster, and now they're the same ones doing it. Buyback, blowback. Speaking of impending doom, you have been looking at the U.S. stock market and especially stock buybacks, which were the big bogeyman recently in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, the evil corporations doing buybacks. So what have you been learning about these and what effect do you think they're going to have on the stock market and thus all of our pensions? Yeah, so, well, buybacks are falling. I mean, that's kind of the headline. It's not unexpected. You know, I'm of the opinion that the economy is gradually, gradually, gradually tilting into a recession, desperately wants to go into a recession, can't go into one because old man Joe Biden won't let it because he's choosing the economy with his Inflation Reduction Act. But every other signal, we've said it a few times on the podcast, is screaming recession. Not every, but, you know, most, especially soft signals. Buybacks have been falling now since uh, the start of 2022 quite dramatically. And I'll expect them to fall further unless the economic fortunes turn around. So what are buybacks? I mean, they are what they say on the tin, really, right? Companies sell shares into the market, and then companies can buy those shares back. And over the past, uh, probably since about 2003, 2004, this has been going on with increased frequency. Now, the first thing to be said about buybacks is that they are at least in part responsible, not totally responsible, but at least in part responsible for the overvaluations that we see in the stock markets, both in this cycle, but also in the 2007-2008 cycle. And by overvaluation, I just mean that what comes up must come down. When you see very high price-to-earnings ratios, well, long-term cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio is the one you look at, or the Schiller CAPE, it's called. If that's really, really high, that is, if the stock price is very high relative to the earnings of the companies, then you can say that that stock uh, is overvalued relative to its history. Well, stock buybacks are part of the story for what's driving that. When the companies go back into the market and they buy their stock back, that juices the price of the stocks and the price of the stocks rise. And the reason that's controversial at a micro level 
is because Q bono, right? Who benefits? CEOs often and senior management because they have some of their salary, in fact, often the majority of their salary paid to them in the form of stock options. <laughs> and so if they can drive that stock price up, it's good for their pocket, right? Now, in theory, you know, Milton Friedman would tell you that putting that incentive in place will incentivize them to be good managers and good stewards of the firm. Well, yeah, or they could involve in what is becoming increasingly commonly known as financial engineering, and they could figure out ways to buy back the stock, drive up the price, and make sure their end-of-the-year bonus is higher. Now, the last thing I'd say about the stock buybacks, just to add the kind of final piece in the puzzle here, is debt, right? So often, now you can, you can buy stocks back from retained earnings, right? You can go out, a, a company like Apple or someone like that can go out and earn money by selling their iPhones. And then some of that money that, that otherwise would have been given out through dividends can be used to purchase back the stock, right? And it's actually, you know, proponents of stock buybacks will say, well, it's just an alternative means of giving, of, of distributing the funds. We could go into that, but eh, we, it doesn't really matter for this purpose. The other thing that you can do to engage in stock buybacks is you can borrow. You can borrow money, for example, oh, I don't know, at very low interest rates, maybe. You can issue long-term corporate debt into the corporate debt market at rock-bottom low interest rates and then use that money to buy back the stock. Now, what does that do? What it does at a macro level is it turns your economy from an equity-led economy, which you know I thought was the thing that we all aspired for. I thought was as American as apple pie. You want people to have an ownership stake in companies. You want capitalism, you know, owners to operate companies. Well, when you get rid of the equity, you shrink the pool of equity, and you grow the pool of debt, you're getting an increasingly, frankly, usurious economy. You're getting, you're getting an economy that's less about equity ownership, shared equity ownership in society, and more about a bunch of big banks and big corporations and one feeding money into the other. And a cycle going on in a kind of, an, I mean, you could say an oligarch class on the top that's juicing their stock portfolio every year. So, so is this healthy at, at the level of managing firms? Is this healthy at the level of debt to equity ratios or the, the scale of equity owner of an ownership society versus a society based on maybe not usury, maybe that's slightly exaggerated, but certainly, you know, debt and just paying things back. To a, to a big banking system that becomes ever bloated. I mean, the last thing I'd say, kind of painting the broad picture of the stock buybacks phenomenon, is everyone's having a party. <laughs> who's, who's losing in this? Now, there may be losers long term, but it's not clear there are losers in the short term. It's a cheap money party, right? The Fed drives down the, the interest rates, it engages in QE or whatever, and, and all the bankers and the CEOs and everybody has a cheap money party. And everyone's pockets are stuffed. So that's what's been going on. But we're seeing the latest turn of that cycle. But I'm sure unless something drastic changes with central bank policy, share buybacks will be back in, you know, we'll be talking about them again in five to 10 years when the cycle turns. Quick question about this. You know, the stock market has been aloft at very high, at very high ratio, you know, levels. If you look at ratios like Price to equity, which is basically the price of the, the you know the price of an individual stock, you know divided by the 
the amount of you know the amount of equity within that company you know you see ratios really high at the moment and, re- and and they've been very high for a long time and you know i have read for you know a few years now that look these are are way higher than historical norms and when they do reach this level you know there tends to be a big correction you, you know it's basically a, a ratio that tells you how long you're going to have to wait to get paid you know like how many years of dividends you're going to have to get paid to cover the cost of buying the share in the first place and you know these days it's it's decades it seems and you know would be no no such correction has happened no such kind of downward shift to to more normal levels of price over equity have you know have happened since you know and we all know that the you know the S&P 500 which is one of the main indices to you know to measure the overall size of the US stock market through you know some of the bigger market capitalization companies been at really high levels for a lot of years now and it doesn't seem to want to pop at all i wonder how big a role uh, you know i'm sure somebody like goldman sachs or some hedge fund has done research into this but you know uh, uh, is the increasing prevalence of share buybacks is that really been the kind of the helium that's kept the whole thing afloat at at, at quite unusual levels historically and if they slow down can we expect a big sudden you know, fall within the stock market? Actually, it was, I think, the company I used to work for that looked into this. You can't, and I think I played some role in it, um, you, can't, you can't tell for certain what's having a price impact on stocks. It just, it doesn't work like that. You can't just line up all the ducks in a row and go, this stock is having this impact, blah, 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 right? Because stock markets are ultimately auctions. And so you don't know how much each transaction is having how much how much of an impact each transaction or what type of transaction is having on the price. One transaction could raise the price 5%, another one could raise it 0.1%, even though the, the 0.1% is a physically larger transaction than the 5%. So that's just the way these markets work, which makes them extremely difficult to study. That said, share, bank, share buybacks have to have some impact because they increase the volume of money going into the market. Now, not saying it's a supply and demand phenomenon. I wrote my dissertation on this. Stock markets are not a supply and demand phenomenon. They they are rated. They are they're, they're assets. Assets are priced fundamentally different than you know goods like a potato or something like that. But having a larger volume of money go into that market, which is what share buybacks do, has to have an effect on valuations. It can't have a negative effect. It can't have a completely neutral effect. It could be that each purchase is, is moving it only incrementally in a tiny fashion, but there's no reason to think that the, that the share buyback purchases are any less drivers of prices than a purchase by a pension fund, than a purchase by an individual, than a purchase by an ETF vehicle or anything else. So yes, share buybacks are driving some of this. How much are, are they driving? Totally impossible to tell. Completely impossible to tell. Will a drawdown in share buybacks lead to a drawdown in stock prices? Yes, but it's also likely to be the other way around. Uh, Stock markets, again, when you study them, they're a complete hall of mirrors, at least in terms of price action. And you don't know what's driving what. In my opinion, at the end of the day, it's what Keynes called the animal spirits. When investors lose confidence, 
the prices of stocks start to fall and then everything else falls with it. Share buybacks fall because it's an inopportune time to buy them. The creation of new ETF vehicles fall. The inflow of money from pension funds falls as more of it goes into cash and debt because they're scared of the equity market. So I think really the real driver of equity market prices is the animal spirits, is the, is the confidence that investors have in the market. It really is a big confidence game. But you know, some of that volume of purchase is coming from share buybacks. And if those share buybacks were removed, it would be very surprising if the current valuation levels were reached. How much are they causing? I don't know. In terms of, you know, I think maybe what you're implicitly getting at is why haven't we seen a turn in this market yet? Well, we have in the past few months, (laughs) maybe. The high interest rates are getting rid of, actually, the interesting thing is the high interest rates are not only spooking people, and I think spooking is the key thing here. I really do think animal spirits is the main driver of the show, but it's also choking certain things off. So, for example, you can imagine a mechanical choking off of share buybacks because of what I just said. To do these buybacks, not all of them, but some of them, companies are engaged in financial engineering where they're going in and borrowing at very low interest rates and then buying the shares back. Well, they can't do that anymore because interest rates have gone up. So you've just there immediately withdrawn a volume of money from the stock market. Another example of that, when interest rates go up, putting your money to sit there in a savings account or in a 10-year government bond is now more attractive relative to the stocks. So a certain volume of money is, is removed from there through that mechanism too. So in short, look, the stock market cycle in recent years, in the, in the years where we've had a very financialized economy, let's say the last 30 years, has tended to respond to interest rates and recession. And all those things tend to move in tandem, probably housing markets too. So I think that's where we're headed. But the, the buyback phenomenon, I think it's worth highlighting, not because it's going to be the driver of the stock market cycle, and we're not here to give people portfolio advice, God help us. But it is interesting insofar as the kind of structural changes to the nature of the capitalist economy that share buybacks have that I mentioned at the beginning. And also the fact that, look, they may not be the tip of the spear when it comes to upswings and downswings in the stock market, but they are, beca- they are a very important component and they be- seem to be growing as, a, as, as how large a component they are. We are fresh from a huge victory.